0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit Holdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all today. If you have a Bible, let's uh, take it out today and open up to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Last week we started a brief little four week study on the ministry of Christ. So just a refresher from a snippet of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5. And uh, last week we looked at the temptation of Christ and what that meant for his launch into public ministry. And today we're going to study the mission of Christ. What is he about? What was he? Why did he come? How did he self perceive his mission uh, to be? And uh, how can we join in with that mission? Uh, But before I read the text, I want to um, give a special announcement, just really encouraging you to uh, be here for church on Sunday, July 9th. Uh, I know many of you, what you're thinking, you're thinking, well, that's a Sunday. So, of course, I will be at church that day. Uh, But that's going to be Pastor Jeff Buck's last staff Sunday. Uh, He's entering into retirement, and uh, so we want to celebrate him and rejoice over him after 50-plus years of ministry uh, in pastoral work. Uh, he's gonna be uh, retiring from that staff role uh, here at Calvary. You know, one of my first moves as the senior pastor of this church over 15 years ago, uh, I was younger back then, and I knew I needed an older guy to come and help me. And uh, I thought Jeff was ancient at that point, and he was uh, 53 years old or 54 years old. I'm getting close to that myself at this point. So now I think, well, he was really, he was more of a middle aged guy that I brought in. Uh, But uh, he has faithfully stood by my side and by so many of our sides over these last uh, 15 years and has been such a blessing. Uh, To so many of us. So, I hope you can be here that Sunday to honor him. I want to tell you a little bit about what retirement years look like for a guy like Jeff. His big dream is not to sit on his porch and just wait for Jesus to take him home. Uh, What Jeff wants to do is minister to his family. He has four adult daughters who are scattered all over the United States. And he also wants to pour into the next generation of young pastors that are coming up all over the world. And so that's what his focus and energy are going to be thrown into and on. Uh, That's important for us to know, partly because uh, Jeff and Denise are not going to move from the area. They're still going to be part of this fellowship. So we'll still get to see them and be uh, in uh, relationship with them as the years go by, as long as they're in town and not on the road traveling or uh, with family But it's also important for us to know because when they are here, and especially Jeff when he retires this summer, uh, they're not here to do so many of the things that we've relied on them to do in the years past. So Jeff is a great counselor. We, many of us have sat in a room with him and had him listen to what we're going through. He's given us counsel and uh, he is shifting his focus uh, at that time. This is my nice way of saying please leave him alone once he retires because his focus needs to be uh, in and, and another place. And so we'll f- find other ways to take care of the counseling needs uh, here at Calvary. But wanted to let you know, be here July 9th uh, so we can honor uh, that man and uh, send him off into retirement. All right, um, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, Let's read our whole passage together. We're going to go all the way through verse 30. Uh, You guys can follow along. I'll read it out loud. It says, and he, this is Jesus, after he finished the temptations in the wilderness And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this mission that you declared on that day so many years ago in Nazareth, and we pray, Lord, that we would understand what that mission was so that we could reflect it today, so that we could receive it today, and so that we could get your power to execute it well today. We pray, Lord, that your church would more and more look like this, and that more and more we'd be part of what you are doing here on earth. We thank you, Lord, for the reason that you came. We pray that you'd remind us afresh of it this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I love uh, music. I'm a, I'm a music fan, and uh, there's not a lot of music that I don't like. And so uh, I've come across many different types of albums and album covers and different genres of music over the years. And one of the things that I've noticed is that album covers, they seem like they're intended to produce some kind of emotion in you. In other words, when you see an album cover, a lot of times, sometimes they're so abstract, you have no idea what's on the other side. But oftentimes, uh, they're to give you some type of impression. You know, if, I, if I click play, then here's what I can expect I'm going to feel or hear or experience on the other side of that push of the button. Uh, so you'll never, never look at a Johnny Cash album cover, for instance, and be thinking to yourself, I wonder if this is a reggae artist, you know? You, you kind of have an idea of the kind of vibe that you're going to get. You'd never see a symphony on the cover of a New York Philharmonic album and think to yourself, this is probably pop. I think that's what I'm gonna hear right now. And you, you would never uh, look at a Taylor Swift album album cover and say to yourself, I I think what I'm seeing here is some West Coast rap. That's probably not what you're going to listen to. Unless, of course, it's the Reputation album cover for those of you who are Swifty fans uh, today. That one does have a little bit of a West Coast rap vibe to it. But by looking at the cover, you get an idea for what you will hear if you press play. At this point, In Luke's account of the life of Jesus, he's ready to introduce the cover art to Jesus's ministry. Already at this point in Luke's gospel, he has in great detail elaborated on all of the historical elements leading up to this point. He's talked to us of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and the childhood of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. But now Jesus is ready to go to work. So Luke records the cover art to Jesus's album in the passage that we read today. If you hit play on the rest of Jesus's life, if you hit play on the life of the church, which is to express Jesus's life today, the things in this passage are the things that you should hear, the things that you should find. Now, the question that we're going to ask today is really simple. If Luke is trying to show us what Jesus thought his mission was, then what was Jesus's mission? In other words, how did Jesus self-perceive what his purpose was? The second question that we'll ask today is, how did Jesus carry out that mission? And how do we carry out that mission? And the final question that we'll ask today is, and what should we do about that information? Okay, the whole episode, though, it unfolds after Jesus defeats the devil in the wilderness. He comes out of that test in the wilderness, and he, the Bible says, preaches in the Spirit's power all throughout the region of Galilee. And Jesus's style at this point in Luke's gospel is to go from synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's doing it with the power of the Spirit. And finally, the day comes where it's time for him to go to his hometown, his home synagogue in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a far out-of-the-way community up in the hills over a mountain pass. Uh, There were at maximum 500 people who lived in Nazareth at the time of Christ, and it's more than likely that there were about 100 or 200 people only living in this small little town. So everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody was conscious of his identity. So the Sabbath day comes and Luke tells us in verse 16 that Jesus continued... His custom, that's the word that he uses. Jesus had a custom of every single Saturday going to the gathering of God's people there in the synagogue. And uh, he continues this custom here in verse 16. I like that because if there was ever a guy who could have said, I don't like going to the gathering, I don't go to the gathering because it's full of hypocrites, uh, Jesus would have been that guy. Uh, But he went to church, despite the types of people that were there. And because Jesus was there, they handed him, it says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. They give him the book of Isaiah, the, the 23rd book of the Old Testament. And Jesus, it says, found the place. He had a specific text he wanted to read on this special day, and he began to read. Uh, Now, in their era, looking at the scroll, they didn't have the chapter markings that we do today. We put those in years later. But he turned to Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 4. It was a passage that was addressed to the people of Israel way back in the Old Testament era during a time where after so many years of sin, God told them, you're going to be sent into captivity in Babylon as discipline for your sins. But Isaiah's promise was, but there's a figure, a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior, who's going to come and he's going to set you free from that captivity. It was a messianic figure who would rescue them from their bondage. Now, after reading the passage, Jesus sat down like teachers of that day did, and he began teaching them from that text with the line in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he probably continued to elaborate on what he meant by that. It was a clear and authoritative claim that he was the Messiah, the savior, the deliverer, the one who would usher in a new age of rescue and redemption that the Old Testament prophets had been predicting for so many years. He was the long-awaited savior, and he was ready to go to work. Okay, so let's get into our three questions that I said we were going to ask today. Question number one, what is his mission? What is his mission? This is water right now. I'm not drinking coffee, you know, like I'm so bored. I got to get some caffeine, just a little water. What is his mission? Well, first, it's clear from the passage that Jesus's mission was to produce the gospel, It's really clear from everything that he quotes and everything that he said. Look at what he said in verse 18. This is from Isaiah 58, actually. He said, he'd come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. (laughs) Jesus' vision of what he came to do was that there was somebody who was oppressed and he was coming to set them free. He was coming to set oppressed people uh, free of that oppression. Now, this is important because this means that Jesus viewed himself not only as a prophet. He, of course, was prophetic. He said many prophetic things, powerful things, dynamic things, but he was more than a prophet. Prophets promised things that God would do, promised a deliverance would come, but Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to actually be the deliverer. I'm going to be the one to set the captive free. So in that way, he has more, to, more in common with uh, Moses than he does with Isaiah, for example. Moses set people free from Egypt or was God's instrument in setting them free. Isaiah promised that they would be free one day because a figure would come who would set them free. So Jesus would produce the gospel, and we know that Jesus did that. I mean, all of the gospels point us to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Why do they do that? Because it's the center point of the Christian faith. Without Jesus's substitutionary death on the cross, without his resurrection, there is no Christianity. The gospels are clear about that. The book of Acts is clear about that. They went out preaching the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, telling people about Jesus's death and burial and resurrection, and then the epistles are centered Upon that, talking about Christian doctrine and how it's all tied to what Jesus did on the cross. So we know that Jesus was the one who came to produce the message of the gospel. But don't miss this. Not only did he come to produce the gospel, secondarily, what was his mission? Well, he came to proclaim the gospel. That's a word that's used over and over again in the quotation that he gives from Isaiah 61. Proclaim the good news to the poor. Proclaim sight to the blind. Proclaim liberty to the oppressed. A few times you see the word proclaim. He came to produce the gospel, but he also came to proclaim it to people who were oppressed and hurting and marginalized. Now we celebrate Jesus because he he became all of those things for us, didn't he? He became oppressed. He became hurting. He became marginalized for us. I mean, Jesus experienced poverty while he was here on earth. Jesus was blinded from the glory of the Father temporarily while he served us here on earth. Jesus lived under a time of Roman oppression, Roman oppressors pushing down on the populace. Uh, Jesus even knew what it was like to flee for his life as a refugee. Uh, Early on in his life when Herod decided to kill the babies in Bethlehem, his father was warned, Joseph was warned in a dream, and he They fled to Egypt for a number of years. I talked to a a Ukrainian woman this last winter who she had had to flee for her life as well. And uh, she rejoiced in remembering that about Jesus, that Jesus could identify with her plight to a degree because of what he had endured in running or fleeing from the madness of Herod. But the question that we need to ask is who are the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed people that Jesus mentions in this passage? Who are these people that Jesus came to rescue? And part of the reason why this is important is because you have some segments of the visible church today who say Jesus just came to deal with physical versions of all of these things. Physical blindness, physical poverty, physical oppression. Uh, And then you have others who say, no, Jesus didn't come to deal with any of that. He came to only deal with spiritual versions of all of those things, spiritual poverty, spiritual oppression, spiritual blindness. And then you have some in the church who say, well, it seems that Jesus came to deal with both, first by dealing with the spiritual dimension, but ultimately wanting to create a people who deal with the physical world as well. So who are these people that Jesus is targeting? Well, what you have to do first is go back to the original passage that Jesus read from in Isaiah. Who were the oppressed in the quotation? Well, they were poor and oppressed and blind captives that Isaiah alluded to who had been banished from Israel. And the reason that they had been banished or carried off into captivity is because for over 400 years they had been rebelling against God. They had been sinning. So they were literally physically banished, but they were banished for a spiritual crime that they had been committing against God. So the deliverer Isaiah had in mind that God was going to reach people through this Messiah who were poor and captive and blind and oppressed, literally because of deep-seated historical, generational, and ongoing sin the Messiah that Isaiah had in mind was going to break them out of that sad condition by dealing with their sin and brokenness and set them free from Babylon or the world. So Isaiah was looking forward to someone who would free people held captive because of sin And as I've already said, I think the rest of Jesus' story helps us understand that that's exactly how he saw it as well, that people are oppressed by sin, held captive by sin, and that he needs to come and set them free. That's the whole message of the gospel, the message of the cross. The main oppressor that Jesus came to deal with, in other words, was sin. But even though Jesus saw sin, as the main oppressor, we should also think about how Jesus went about uh, living out that information. He applied his tactics by setting people free from spiritual and unseen poverty and captivity and blindness and oppression, but also he went straight to the natural versions of all of those things. You know, Jesus cleansed lepers. Jesus reached out to tax collectors who were on the fringe of society and rejected by the masses. Uh, Jesus restored prostitutes. Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus delivered demoniacs. Jesus blessed children. You could say in a sense that Jesus ran straight to the underdogs of the world system many of whom were underdogs because of either sin that they had committed or had been committed against them, but underdogs nonetheless. So I think for this reason, you would expect an outflow of gospel ministry to look something like what William Wilberforce did in England so many years ago when he led the charge to abolish the slave trade, Uh, like what Martin Luther King did or Nelson Mandela did, You would expect to find Jesus's people proclaiming the gospel to the spiritually poor, the spiritually captive, the spiritually blind, and the spiritually oppressed of the world, but also living out the gospel by helping the materially poor, imprisoned, sick, and refugees of our world. None of this work in the physical realm can or should ever replace, displace, or erase the gospel message. But they're also not to be evidences of a woke Christianity or something like that, but are a complement to the truth of Jesus's work on the cross. That's Jesus's mission, to through the cross, produce the gospel, and then proclaim it. And you have to think about how he went about proclaiming it to those who were in need. Uh, I once read a story of a church in uh, England from the 19th century. And uh, this was a really prosperous church, a healthy church, and they made a great impact in their community. And uh, what they did is they uh, started many sister churches in the rougher parts of town. And uh, each year, uh, all of those churches would get together at the main church for one big communion service. And it was a way for all of them to, to confess visibly, we are one body before Jesus, So I read of one particular service where uh, there was a Supreme Court judge who was part of the home church, and he was taking communion, and as he did, he looked over, and next to him was a man who had been a thief that years earlier he had convicted and sent to prison. And this man, of course, had done his time, and then he had become a Christian, and now he was serving in one of those neighborhood churches that was reaching harder parts of town. And uh, there they were, partaking of communion together, a beautiful scene. Well, after the service was over with, the pastor and the Supreme Court Justice were walking together, and the justice said to the pastor, you know, did you, did you see who I was next to during communion today? And the pastor said, yes, I, I did. I, it was amazing. And the, and the justice said to him, what an amazing display of God's grace. And the pastor said, yeah, absolutely. That's an incredible story of God's grace. And then the justice quickly turned to the pastor and said, but who are you referring to? Because I'm referring to myself. Everything in that man's life, everything about his circumstances preached to him a need for the gospel. But everything in my life said, you're moral enough, you're good enough, You're contributing to society. You're a good person. You don't need anything. And it was the miracle of the grace of God that opened my eyes to see my spiritual poverty and helped me realize I needed to give my life to the Lord. I think that that story uh, pictures Jesus's mission really well. The gospel message it does lead us to start outreaches and do bridge ministry and minister into pockets of societal pain in our community. But not before it rocks us internally because without Christ, we are all spiritually impoverished before God. Without Jesus, we're all held down captive to sin. Without Jesus, we're all spiritually blind. And without Jesus, we're all oppressed by the pervasive effects of sin. So Jesus came to produce the gospel, but he came to proclaim it as well. And we need to pay attention to the way that he proclaimed it. Okay, the second question, though, that I want to ask today from this passage is, how does Jesus carry out his mission? Okay, we've thought about what his mission is. How does Jesus carry out his mission? Well, Jesus's text from Isaiah Uh, Makes it really clear. Look at verse 18. The first word that he reads from Isaiah is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So, how does Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? He did it by the power of the Spirit. This should be obvious at this point in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came upon him. Uh, the, The Spirit led him into the wilderness, the Spirit helped him overcome temptation. The Spirit strengthened him to preach from city to city and to work miracles. And now he's saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Everything that Jesus did was led and energized by the Spirit. Uh, In other words, it was evident that the anointed one, the Messiah, had come because the Spirit was so thickly upon Jesus. Uh, So Jesus gets the job done by the Spirit, but also he gets the job done by grace. And I want to draw your attention to the last phrase that Jesus quoted in verse 19. He said in his closing line of his Isaiah read-through, he said that he was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you might not have any idea what that means, but you know at least it's good, right? You know, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's like you want to put that on a Hallmark card or something. Like, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's got to be something positive. It's got to be something good, and you'd be right. It's a a great thing. But uh, let me explain it to you so that you can see how great it is. First of all, this phrase is the same phrase that was used to describe or to announce the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament era. Uh, the year of Jubilee was something the people of Israel probably never obeyed God in, but that God told them to obey every 50 years. And what would happen in their society, or was supposed to happen, was every 50 years, uh, the mortgages would be reset across the whole land. Property would be returned to the original family owners or the descendants of the original family. Uh, indentured servants, people who had fallen into hard times and so they sort of sold themselves into servitude to pay off their debts, were all set free, and the poor were redeemed out of their condition. So it was like this huge economic reset every 50 years in Israel. It was called the year of Jubilee because it was meant to be like a celebratory moment. And uh, when Isaiah talked about the year of the Lord's favor back in Isaiah 61, he's using the same phraseology that described the announcement of the year of Jubilee. So it's like Jesus has come with the year of Jubilee, the ultimate reset that the gospel can provide a human heart. All your debts, all your shame, all your guilt, all of that dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate jubilee found in Jesus. But another reason why this is so powerful for Jesus to say this right here is because of what he didn't read from Isaiah's text. If you go back to the book of Isaiah and continue reading, right after the year of the Lord's favor is this little beauty of a line, and the day of the vengeance of our god. Jesus didn't read that part. Now why didn't Jesus read that part? Was it because Jesus didn't like the uncomfortable portions of the Bible? No, he wrote all the uncomfortable portions of the Bible. He is the word made flesh. So he is not ashamed of any part of it. The reason that he paused right there is because he didn't come in his first coming in judgment, but he paused and the judgment will come in the future. What he's announcing to those that were there that day and to us is that we are currently in the time frame of the year of the Lord's favor, and one day, the day of judgment is ultimately going to arrive. Maybe a way I can illustrate this is uh, in our house, uh, our microwave, for whatever reason, we didn't research it or anything, but Uh, we discovered after we bought it that it has the most annoying uh, beep in human history. You know, it it lasts like seven minutes. You can't cancel it. Once it gets started, it's got to complete its whole announcement to you that you're done. You know, so you're like early in the morning trying to heat up some coffee or whatever. And you're just, if, if you don't pull the door open before it gets to zero, uh, you've just announced to the whole neighborhood that you've, your <laughs> cup of coffee is ready. So typically in our house, when you look at the clock on our microwave, uh, the time is not there. What's there is one second or two seconds or three seconds because somebody has heated something up and they have, right before the beep, opened it up so that the beep would not occur. Now, if you were to go up to the microwave and just hit start, it would... Rebegin that countdown, three, two, one, and the beep would occur. Uh, it's like Jesus was reading this passage from Isaiah, and he opened the microwave door right before the beep. He stopped reading the passage right before the vengeance. It will come, the vengeance will come, but it's on pause right now because this is the age of the Spirit and the age of grace that we're in today. So what I want to say here is, you know, to this question, how does Jesus carry out his mission? He does it by the power of the Spirit, and he does it by the grace of God. You know, one day Jesus is going to come, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. But right now, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a a smoldering wick. Uh, As Jesus's people, we have to, I think, keep this in mind. When we think about this being Jesus's methodology, I think it informs or colors the way that we act, the way that we behave, the way that we interact with the world in which we live. We're called to proclaim Christ with our words and our character, but we have to remember to be gracious in so doing, and we also have to remember that it's by the power of the Spirit that the job actually gets done at the end of the day. The Spirit of God needs to open up somebody's heart, open up somebody's eyes, soften them to the things of God. So we do our part, but the Spirit must do His. And though there might be times where we're frustrated by the world that we live in, maybe even times that we secretly wish that Jesus would close the microwave and hit start again and that the day of vengeance would come, we have to remember that we're in the year of the Lord's grace right now. When Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He did not mean, Nazareth, this 24-hour period of time is the day of the Lord, uh, the the day of the Lord's favor. Uh, What what he meant was, today I am inaugurating, instituting that day. We are still ministering and living in that day of the favor of the Lord. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's a story that i really like it comes from the book of zechariah and uh, it's it's uh, about this man he's the governor of uh, jerusalem at the time and his job his name was zerubbabel his job was to rebuild the temple but he didn't have a lot of resources to get the job done it felt impossible to him it felt like a mountain of a project you ever have something like that you know just how in the world is this going to get accomplished how is this going to get done well he didn't know how he was going to rebuild that temple So the prophet Zechariah came to him, gave him a vision and gave him a prophecy that were designed to encourage him. And what uh, Zechariah the prophet told this governor, Zerubbabel, was that the great mountain that was in front of him would actually become a plain, that God was going to make it easy for him, that he was going to remove the obstacle and make it like traveling on a plane, not mountainous terrain, but like a plain. And uh, that work, he said, would not happen by human might but it would happen by the power of the spirit. And one day they would take the top stone of that temple and they would install it. They'd finish the job uh, with shouts of grace. I like that story because it has in it both of the ingredients that Jesus was leaning on. The spirit being the one to really get the job done, uh, but the tone, the tenor, Being the grace of God, that it's God's favor upon a people as we're doing the work and the ministry that He's called us to do, and so I believe we've got to we've got to reflect on that. We've got to think about that. In fact, just this last week, I was out to lunch with the man who pastored this church before me for just a couple of years, Roger Scalise, and he's a great guy. Came to our church at a real important season, and. He's 72 years old now. He loves the Lord more than ever. He's continually uh, active in ministry. Uh, he's just uh, full of life. And uh, I remember when, when he was here, there was like a little part of him just kind of behind the scenes and we'd have conversations. He, he had toyed with the idea of renaming the church something like, I think it was River of Grace Church. Because he just had this vision of expositional preaching being this thing where like the Bible is open and you're unleashing the word. But what you're doing is because it's the word, you're unleashing grace. And there needs to be a river of grace because grace is what motivates and encourages and produces the true change and transformation that we actually want to see in life. That's how Jesus did it. He did it by the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, last question, just real quickly. We've thought about what Jesus' mission is. We've thought about uh, how he did it. What should we do in response? What should we do? If Jesus' mission is to produce and proclaim the gospel to the world, uh, if his method is to do it by the power of the Spirit and grace, how, how should we respond? Well, Jesus gave part of the answer right here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Immediately after his message, uh, everyone in Nazareth, it says in verse 22, spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Uh, they, They had heard of everything that he'd done all throughout Galilee, and now they saw a glimpse of his spiritual power in that synagogue, and they remembered him, though, as the carpenter's son. So they're trying to reconcile these two things. How is this guy saying and doing these things? Uh, But Jesus knew that they wouldn't be in awe of him for very long, and the text shows us that. They tried to kill him by the end of the episode. Uh, And he told them in verse 24, he said, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he, he warned them. He said, you know, one day you guys are gonna quote to me the popular proverb, physician, heal yourself, which for them meant, hey, you did cool stuff in other cities Do cool stuff in our city, your hometown. Physician, heal yourself. Do your healing or miraculous works here. Now, knowing that, knowing that Jesus was going to be, knowing that Nazareth was going to reject him, Jesus reminded them of the Old Testament stories of two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Both of these prophets lived in Israel during a time when there were a lot of poor people and a lot of oppressed people, but both of them, ministered to people who were not Israelites in miraculous ways. Elijah served a poor widow outside of Israel from Sidon, and Elisha served a powerful general inside of Israel, but he'd visited from Syria. Now, was it physical poverty that set them apart from all the Israelites that Elijah and Elisha knew back home? No, not at all. There were lots of poor widows in Israel. And Naaman, the general, he wasn't poor, or captive, or oppressed, or blind in the literal sense, but both of them sensed a need to humble themselves before the living God. When the sin of pride was broken, God rushed in to deliver them, and Jesus is after the same right here. In, in, in a sense, what Jesus is saying with these stories to the people in Nazareth is he's saying, I've just told you what my mission is. The wrong response is to say, and so I will join him on his mission, The right response is to say, I am the target of his mission. I need his salvation. I need his rescue. I'm the poor, I'm the oppressed, I'm the blind, I'm the captive who needs to be set free. That's step one. But after you do that, then Jesus would say, and what should we do? I would say, well, you receive Jesus and then you join Jesus. That's my closing line. Join Jesus. He wants us to press play. He wants us to consider him in the gospels, the epistles, the Old and New Testaments, over and over again. He wants us to receive his commissioning into the world to make disciples. He wants us to recognize that our power is not in our heritage. It's not in our customs. It's not in our spiritual leaders. But it's in the gospel. And you have to believe this, you guys. Paul the Apostle said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation and to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you believe that? You know, as long as the church kind of sits back and goes like, oh man, the world is just so messed up, it's impossible, then you're missing it. We instead need to say, we have the atomic power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have... We have the answer, the solution that a hurting and broken world needs. The very same gospel that overturned the Roman world is the same gospel that people need today. So continue to say, I'm gonna receive that message, cling to that message, apply that message, but I'm gonna join Team Jesus and I'm gonna be a proclaimer of that gospel with grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen?